A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 156, The Half-Blind, Leading the Blind. You can imagine how long I've been sitting on that title. Today we're going to talk about Basil the Bulgar Slayer and the end of the Bulgarian War. But before we get there, we need to put this conflict fully into context. The sheer length of this war is something that it would be easy to lose sight of, given our lack of sources. If you look at Justinian's time in power, our information was so plentiful that each decade of his reign has its own flavour. His rise to power under Justin, the optimism of the conquests, the post-plague depression. By contrast, we know so little about Basil's era that we have no idea what he was thinking most of the time. We don't know what people thought back home. We have no clue what Samuel and the Bulgarians were feeling. It would be easy then, as many historians of the previous century did, to cast the war as one long mission of revenge for Basil. In 986, he was ambushed and humiliated at Trajan's Gate, in 1018, he finally conquered Bulgaria. Given Selos' characterization of the emperor as stern and angry, it's tempting to see Basil teeth-gritted, determined to make crushing Bulgaria his life's mission. But we shouldn't move to such hasty conclusions. We have no evidence that Basil took his defeat so personally. In the east, the Fatimids had repeatedly dealt the Romans embarrassing blows, but the emperor had never allowed that to affect his strategic decision-making. He wanted peace with Cairo, and he got it. What then did Basil want in the Balkans? I think it's fair to say that he wanted to reclaim the lands that Zimisces had taken, and though wounded pride was a factor in that, it was mainly for strategic reasons. The Romans needed to control the entrance to the Danube to keep the Rus at bay. But beyond that, Basil may have been happy for Samuel's state to exist in Macedonia, ideally without the title of Tsar. But if the Bulgarians had been content to stay in the west and keep away from the coast, then it was easier to leave them be, 
Remember that in 997, after the victory on the Spercios River, we're told that Basil was interested in peace. And again, in 1005, after securing the Danube and retaking Dyrrhachium, peace is mentioned in our sources. There was no other active front in 1005, so if peace was discussed, then it seems that the Vasilevs was looking to end the war. If true, then he doesn't seem bent on the destruction of Bulgaria, nor consumed with vengeance. As I mentioned last time, between 1005 and 1014, we know nothing about the war in the Balkans. When our information returns, the two sides are back on campaign and seem to have been for a while. Perhaps, as in 997, Samuel could not conclude a peace after suffering a string of defeats. His legitimacy depended on his ability to defeat the Romans. To agree to a deal which limited his state to a particular area probably felt like accepting a Byzantine cage. Something I'm keen to emphasize here is the success of the Bulgarian kingdom. Samuel and his brothers began their work in 976, and they survived waves of Roman pressure for 42 years. Central to this achievement was the strength of their Macedonian heartland. The area around the lakes had been one of the early centres of Slavonic Christianity. That sense of identity and prestige helped the brothers establish themselves as community leaders after the collapse of Preslav. The prosperity of this community was based around the old Via Ignatia. Even though the Romans hadn't controlled the length of it for centuries, it was still the natural path through the mountains. The people that lived along it enjoyed trade with one another and with the wider world through Dyrrhachium. To the north, the rivers could also take their goods to the Serbs and Croats, as well as the Danube and the trading towns there. Bishoprics and monasteries flourished in the area throughout this period, tending to the spiritual needs of a people who were fighting for their freedom. Samuel's main residence was on an island in Lake Prespa. He built a huge cathedral and palace there, and when Basil finally captured the royal treasury, he found crowns, lots of money, including 10,000 pounds of stamped gold. So we know that Samuel's campaigning, trading, and tax arrangements were very successful. The Bulgarians kept an army and administration functioning in wartime conditions for nearly half a century. Samuel must have been a good diplomat as well as general. He kept disparate communities working together, including the ancestors of the Albanians and Vlachs, who escape our historical attention, but must have lived in his kingdom. One thing I imagine the Bulgarians no longer had, though, was the old steppe cavalry corps. The grasslands north of the Hemus Mountains and beyond the Danube had sustained them, but Macedonia was a land of mountain and forest. 
This meant that the Bulgarians could almost never afford to stand and fight the Romans on flat ground. They no longer had the weapons which put fear into Byzantine hearts. Instead, their tactics became entirely based around the landscape. Hit and run, ambush, surprise. These were the skills which kept Basil at bay for four decades. Given that we have so little information about these campaigns, we need to turn to indirect sources of information. As you know, Nicephorus Focus had two vital military manuals written during his time in charge of the Eastern Armies. One on how to deal with Arab raids, the other on the army he built to invade Syria. There is a third practical guide, often copied alongside these two, with no author's name attached. This anonymous treatise discusses warfare in the Balkans. It is addressed to the emperor by a more experienced general, which could well suggest it was written for a young Basil. In its pages, we can see a plausible explanation for why the Bulgarian war lasted as long as it did. At the centre of the author's concern is a desire not to be surprised by the enemy. Understandably. But that concern leads to chapter after chapter of caution. Great attention is paid to the construction of a proper military camp. Not only the usual maxims about the layout and vigilant sentries, but about the location of the camp itself. Don't set up near a mountain or a hill. Don't camp near the woods. Even if the landscape looks empty, the enemy can move silently through darkness and suddenly be upon you. The varied terrain of the Balkans also leads to concern over supplies. You may not be able to keep your whole army together. It may be too large to be fed from local sources. This means dividing your forces, which is less than ideal, but may be necessary. When on the march, securing sources of water and securing your flanks is vital. Again, hills and forests are dangerous places. You have to send units ahead to garrison every vulnerable spot before the emperor can pass by. This goes double for narrow defiles. Scouts must scale all the surrounding hills of a mountain pass to make sure the enemy are not lying in wait. Mountain passes, river fords, and bridges are the key choke points across the terrain. Not only does the area need to be scouted and garrisoned, but attention must be paid to the order in which units cross. You cannot let men just stroll across chatting to friends from another division. Everyone must cross in battle order. That gives them the best chance of surviving if an attack takes place during the crossing. This ultra-cautious approach is evidently wise but it has huge implications on a campaign season. The author insists that if you suspect the enemy has occupied a strategic location, then you must march around it, even if this means adding days to your journey. And if you discover the enemy 
has definitely garrisoned a pass, then just leave the area. There is no profit in trying to dislodge them. If taken seriously, this advice could ruin months of planning. And the author says, if you do abandon your campaign, you can't just march straight home. A Roman army heading west is the most predictable of all beasts. The Bulgarians know exactly where we're headed and can far more easily block passes and plan ambushes. So having marched all the way to Macedonia and abandoned a campaign, the emperor would now spend an extra week or two on the road just to take an unexpected route home in order to make sure his army is safe. We don't know if this manual was written for Basil or if he read it, but it seems likely that his experience is reflected in these pages. Remember the joshing which Pselos recorded between the Vasilevs and his troops. The men complain that Basil's pre-battle inspections are taking too long, and he jokes that their battles will go on forever if he isn't thorough. The truth that story captures speaks of a commander who had learnt on his first campaign the price of being unprepared. He refused to be caught out again and would absorb the complaints of his men if it meant they avoided defeat. Several other pieces of advice in the manual echo Pselos's description of Basil. The Balkans presented a completely different challenge to Syria. In the flat farmlands of Cilicia and Aleppo, Nicephorus had been able to deploy a giant infantry square. He was confident that his men would find forage to feed themselves and their horses, and that the camp followers would be protected inside the ranks of the square. The fertility of the Balkans, by contrast, lay in its snaking river valleys. But to get from one to the next meant crossing mountain and forest. The author recommends, therefore, leaving any non-essential personnel behind, along with any luxury items. No gold or silver armour or ornaments should be brought to Macedonia. They will only slow you down, and your men will need to be carrying extra food anyway. Barley didn't grow as abundantly in Bulgaria as the Romans needed, so infantrymen were encouraged not even to bring tents, but supplies instead. This description again speaks to the caution required in campaigning. But doesn't it also reflect our image of Basil's dress sense? Pselos tells us that the emperor avoided ornamentation and would wear a simple purple cloak. Many historians have concluded that the Vasilefs, having married his army, preferred martial simplicity to the fripperies of office. But perhaps, rather than personal preference, this was an outfit born of necessity. Basil spent more summers of his reign in the Balkans than anywhere else. Having learnt to do without finery for so long, perhaps it was a habit he carried over to the palace. Finally, our author tells us that scouts and spies are vital to discovering the disposition of the enemy. Clinically, he points out that the best spy is one whose wife and children 
are in your custody. This too reflects much of the work which the Romans focused on. Unable to lay a blow on Samuel for much of this time, Basil would seek out vulnerable forts and attempt to flip their commander. Dangling the offer of a command in Anatolia did sometimes lead to defections. Then, of course, once the commander's intimates were in Roman hands, it would be easier to suggest that he return with your armies on campaign to help sow dissension and discover the location of the Tsar. Hopefully, this excursion has given you a fuller picture of the war. Samuel's mountain kingdom was strong enough to sustain his war effort for 40 years, while Basil, faced with only treacherous paths and guided by memories of Trajan's gate, moved slowly around the edges of his kingdom, probing for weakness. Once a decade, the Romans would trap and destroy a Bulgarian army, and in the aftermath, the emperor would offer peace. But Samuel could not accept and so the war went on, and on. The sheer length of time is worth absorbing. In 976, Basil was 18, and Samuel, we guesstimate, was 32. When they clashed a decade later, the 42-year-old Samuel embarrassed the 28-year-old emperor at Trajan's Gate. After the civil wars, the mid-thirties Basil began campaigning seriously against 50-year-old Samuel. And now, in 1014, when the most famous battle of the war is fought, Samuel is 70 and still present at the front, while the 56-year-old Basil is into his third decade of command and has no plans to leave the field anytime soon. Our chronicler, John Skylitzes, tells us nothing specific about what happened in the decade leading up to the Battle of Clydeon. Peace may have been discussed, but didn't take. The Bulgarians seem to have retaken several forts, including Veria. It's possible that Samuel had led a series of successful counter-attacks or counter-defections, and Skylitzes left these embarrassing details out of his chronicle. In 1014, he describes a scene that must have been a familiar one from across the decades. Basil had gathered a large army at Thessalonica and attempted to enter the mountains. Samuel, as ever, saw the Romans coming, and as they entered the pass known as Clydeon, they found it blocked. The Bulgarians had thrown up a wall and dug ditches around it. The emperor attacked, but suffering steady losses, he pulled back. Based on the anonymous military manual, now was the time to either pick a new target or go home. However, one of Basil's lieutenants, Nicephorus Xiphias, volunteered to lead a small force over the mountains to attack the enemy from behind. Basil stayed camped at Clydeon, launching sporadic attacks to keep the Bulgarians occupied. Xiphias led his detachment to the south of the pass, through rough, pathless country. 
they scaled the mountainside and found a way over by late July. Screaming and making as much noise as possible to confuse and frighten the Bulgarians, they fell on the defenders. Trapped together in the narrow pass, the Bulgarians panicked and fled. As usual in these circumstances, all was chaos. Men trampled each other into the mud as Xiphias's men went to work. The commotion alerted Basil, whose troops scaled the wall and attacked the remaining Bulgarians. Samuel and his son escaped the disaster, but according to Skylitzes, 15,000 prisoners fell into Basil's hands. The emperor decided that they should all be blinded, punishment for resisting his advance. As his men went along the line, they were to leave every hundredth man with one eye, so that he could lead his century home. This gruesome task accomplished, the Bulgarians were ordered to leave. The sad troop stumbled home, and when Samuel saw them, the Tsar died from the shock. This is one of the most famous stories from Byzantine history, and it provides the centerpiece of the caricature of Basil, the Bulgar Slayer. In the form that it is presented, it's clearly not true. The figure of 15,000 is the big problem here. To be fair to Skylitzes, even he is doubtful, adding they say after the number. A 15,000 would represent a large Roman field army of the day. If the Bulgarians had had so many men, they wouldn't have bothered hiding in a mountain pass. The logistics of how many Byzantines would have been needed in order to capture, hold and blind so many prisoners is not worth going into. But what if we reduce the numbers to, say, 5,000? Even then, it's hard to believe anything like this took place. 5,000 would again be a very large number, both to physically capture and for the Bulgarians to have mustered. And by that, I don't mean that they wouldn't have had 5,000 men available, just that that's a very large number to gather in one mountain pass. And some clearly got away, because Samuel did, and many must have died in the fighting, so we're really talking about more than 5,000 if 5,000 had been captured. And I just don't see how the Romans would have caught that many soldiers in the flight. And more convincing than my speculation is what happened next. For a start, there was another Bulgarian force near Thessalonica at the time, making it unlikely that so many thousands were deployed at Clydeon. And... Basil was then ambushed again as he advanced. His target was the fortress of Strumitsa. All of this is on the map, by the way. Now that the pass of Clydeon was clear, Basil ordered the dukes of Thessalonica to march ahead and make sure the rest of the way was too. But the dukes was ambushed and killed as he closed in on the fortress. So the emperor withdrew to Roman territory. Had Basil captured thousands, he probably wouldn't have attempted to continue on with the campaign. 
with that many mouths to feed, he would have headed home immediately. And if the Bulgarians had suffered such a shattering loss, it's unlikely they would have continued to fight in the vicinity. Nor for another four years of heavy warfare afterwards. So, what happened here? Well, Basil was known for what Antony Cordellis terms exemplary punishments. We've seen several examples of this. Hanging and impaling Focus's rebels, cutting the hands off Bedouin tribesmen, and blindings. Blinding was a traditional Byzantine punishment for rebels and usurpers, ending their eligibility to rule while preserving their ability to ask God for forgiveness. Basil began to extend this punishment to various combatants in the Bulgarian war. We don't know the context of these acts. We assume they were part of the carrot-and-stick offerings he presented to the garrisons of enemy forts. For those who surrendered, promotion. For those who resisted, punishment. Basil, who'd spent the first 25 years of his life having his orders filtered or overruled, now insisted on following through. If he'd said he would blind those who resisted him, then he would. How else could he make men take his offers seriously? So it is possible that at the Battle of Clydeon, Basil did indeed capture and blind some Bulgarian prisoners. Perhaps he even left some with one eye to guide the rest home. But who knows? Coincidentally, Samuel, in his seventies and stressed from the defeat, died a few weeks later. Conflating these two events, storytellers eventually came up with a truly memorable and hideous image. As I mentioned, Basil was on his way back to Constantinople when news reached him that the Tsar had expired. This was a big moment. For the Romans, the death of an emperor could bring chaos, defeat, civil war. For a state without such solid institutions, like Bulgaria, this could prove fatal. Even though autumn had set in, Basil turned his army around and immediately marched back to Macedonia. If he was going to make progress towards peace, then now was the time. The Romans made for the heart of Bulgarian territory, gaining access to the mountains and doing significant damage while they were there. They captured Prelep and burnt the palace at Bithola, both within striking distance of the lakes. But with winter setting in, Basil withdrew his men to safety and returned to Thessalonica in January 1015. As soon as spring arrived, though, the Romans were back in the field and attacking fortresses. At Moglena, they collapsed the walls using fire, deported the able-bodied men and massacred the rest. Basil marched on Orid and blinded all the prisoners he took. Again, the suggestion in the sources is that he'd made a provisional agreement with the new Bulgarian leadership and that they'd reneged on it. Hence why the punishment had to be meted out. 
Despite the success of this campaign, another detachment of the Imperial Army was caught and annihilated in an ambush. Basil prudently withdrew and went back to Thessalonica. While Basil was running riot in the mountains, the Bulgarians were going through the anticipated succession crisis. Samuel's son, Gavril Radomir, took charge of the state, but soon afterwards was murdered by his cousin Ivan Vladislav. One source suggests that Vladislav took action at the prompting of Roman diplomats. It certainly seems like Basil was making contact with the Bulgarian leadership to try and secure a favourable deal. But whatever really happened, Ivan Vladislav took control of the state and continued to fight. In late 1016, Basil was back on the move, besieging the city of Pernik near Serdika. He failed to capture it. The following year, he failed to take the fort of Castoria. His soldiers were burning and pillaging as they went, but the mountains remained very hard to penetrate. Taking a force to these isolated places to set up a siege was logistically very demanding, and it left these troops vulnerable to being cut off. Basil stayed on campaign for the whole year and returned to Roman territory only in January 1018. It seemed that despite the damage he'd inflicted on them, the Bulgarians would not be shaken. Vladislav had secured the support of his subordinates and was gamely resisting. The emperor may well have imagined that the war would simply continue and even outlast him. Unexpectedly, though, Ivan Vladislav was killed the following month as he made an unsuccessful assault on Dyrrhachium. It seems at this point that no other member of the family was in position to take over, nor was there any subordinate strongman with the ambition to hold the project together. Instead, as soon as Vladislav's death was confirmed, Bulgarian officers began sending word to Basil that they wanted to surrender. Without the support of the rest of the kingdom, they knew that one by one they would fall to Roman assault. And of course, by now, they were all well aware that it was better to hand Basil the keys than to have him take them off you. To his surprise, then, the Vasilevs marched into Bulgaria in spring 1018, receiving submission wherever he went. Strumica, Pernik, and many other fortresses opened their gates. Bulgarian churchmen came to the emperor's camp to secure their positions. He marched to Ored, where the entire population came out to acclaim him. He received the royal treasury and immediately distributed it to his soldiers. This had been another of Basil's conspicuous policies whenever he captured loot. The Varangians always got first pick. The Bulgarian generals who surrendered were immediately put on the payroll, including Samuel's extended family, though they were shipped off to Constantinople. The people of Larissa, who had been uprooted three decades before, were offered the choice of going home or staying where they'd made new lives. Roman prisoners everywhere were freed 
including the general John Chaldos, who had been captured 22 years earlier. Basil spent the rest of the year establishing Roman administration in the area, which we'll talk about more at the end of the century. But just as in the East, it was to be a very light occupation. Yes, Roman commanders were put in key positions, and various fortresses were pulled down. But otherwise, the Bulgarians were mollified. Their church left in place, and taxes were to be collected in kind, as they were used to paying them. Basil also found Roman brides for Bulgarian nobles, and Roman husbands for their daughters. He was determined to bring the elites together, and prevent such an exhausting war from resuming. After touring the new provinces and appointing men to do the mopping up, it was time to celebrate. Basil marched south to Athens, perhaps to reassure the people of that region that the war really was over. He was able to give thanks for his victory in the Parthenon, now a Byzantine church. Then, in early 1019, he returned to Constantinople. He entered in triumph, trailing the Bulgarian royal family. For the second time, in half a century, their state was to be retired in front of the Roman people. This time, they would stay subjects of the emperors for 160 years. So ends the Bulgarian War, a conflict which lasted for 42 years pretty much continuously. The Byzantines had finally retaken control of the southwest Balkans. For the first time since Heraclius's day, the Via Ignatia was a Roman road from start to finish. This was a tremendous achievement. Some historians sniffily comment that surely Phocas or Zimisces would have wrapped things up far more quickly. But their success in the East cannot be directly compared to the Balkans. As we already discussed, Syria provided far easier country to invade. Plus, Basil's goal doesn't seem to have been to deliver a knockout blow. He wanted to take the army away from its local commanders and bend it to his will. In that sense, Bulgaria provided a solid testing ground. Had Samuel accepted peace in 997 or 1005, the war may have ended with the survival of Bulgaria in its new Macedonian homeland. Basil showed through his appointment of a Muslim commander in the east that he had no problem working with non-Romans. Had Samuel offered to swap the title of Tsar for Stratikos, or accepted a Roman protectorate like Aleppo, then a very different scenario could have played out. This attitude, if we are correct in our understanding, is a long way from the Bulgar Slayer. How did Basil acquire the reputation for being someone who vowed bloody vengeance on his neighbours and sought their destruction? Next episode, I'll read you Basil's epitaph. In it, he makes no special reference to his victories over the Bulgarians. 
Nor did Psellos, the historian writing closest to the emperor's day, he barely mentions the Bulgarian War. The term Bulgarslayer was first coined about 160 years from now. And if that number rings a bell, then yes, the nickname was applied to Basil only when the Bulgarians looked as if they were about to throw off the Roman yoke. Of course, stories of Basil's exploits had become legend in the meantime. Scylitzes was only writing about 70 years after the event, and already the tale of blinding 15,000 prisoners had taken root. But that's the thing about Basil. We know so little about him that successive generations reinvented him for their own purposes. Scylitzes wrote to encourage the descendants of Basil's officers to take up arms in the Balkans. Coniates, the historian who first reports the term Bulgar Slayer, was desperate to stir his countrymen to stand up against their neighbours. As historian Paul Stevenson makes clear, had the nickname appeared during his lifetime, Basil would have banned it. He had just brought two warring people together. He wanted the Bulgarians to accept Roman rule and become loyal Christian subjects. The last thing he wanted to do was antagonise them by crowing about his own success. Going back to comparisons with Phocas and Zimisces, there is one thing that occurs to me about Basil's war-making. Something that I don't think his predecessors could have achieved. And that's the sheer amount of time he spent away from the capital. As you'll recall, during those early exchanges with the Fatimids, messengers had to travel to the Balkans in winter to find the emperor. Then, just before Cairo accepted peace, Basil wintered in Cilicia. Now, in the last few years, he seems to have decamped to Thessalonica, not Constantinople, so that he could be ready to launch attacks as soon as spring arrived. Only a truly legitimate emperor who had the full trust and support of the capital's people could have got away with this. Most of the men we've covered would have felt too insecure to go for such long periods of time without showing their face in the palace. Phocas's unpopularity and grisly death demonstrated the problem of trying to conquer and rule at the same time. By contrast, we hear of no turmoil during Basil's reign, and usually problems at the capital are recorded because most historians wrote in its vicinity. If we go back before Zimisces's conquest, we'll see that most emperors struggled to maintain the pressure on Bulgaria. Always they were being pulled back to the east or the capital to deal with a crisis. Basil's focus and determination to rid himself of other cares and to achieve a positive result are hugely commendable. Without that application, it's entirely possible that the Bulgarians would have remained a menace to his successors. A postscript on Samuel is that he was buried in one of his churches on an island in Lake Prespa. The site was excavated in the 1960s, and the skeleton of a 70-year-old man was found in gilded chain mail. If this is the Tsar, 
then you can now see his reconstructed face in a bust on the website. Next time, a 60-year-old Basil is finally faced with peace. Will he take a well-earned rest? Of course not. The Vasilevs is back on the march in east and west, determined to never let his troops rest, nor let those on the frontier forget the sight of a Roman army. That will be the final episode for this century of narrative, which began way back in 913 with the death of Leo the Wise. I asked you for questions back in 976, and I still have a fine batch that I will be answering when we get to 1025. But if you have a question to ask, particularly about the 112 years we've just been through, then do send it in. The history of Byzantium at gmail.com is the best place, but you can also post them on the website, tweet at Byzantiumcast, or send them to me on Facebook. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 